Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And before I get into the show, uh, I've got a couple of housekeeping things I want to discuss. One related to the show and one not. The housekeeping I want to deal with that is not related to the show not directly anyway, is situation in Buffalo, New York. Uh, for those of you who had the chance to watch the game, you saw something spectacular as far as the Buffalo Bills uh, in honor of their teammate who suffered a cardiac arrest the last time they played. Uh, by the way, he's doing well. If Everybody in America should, be, should know that by now. He's doing well. He watched the game yesterday. Um, but there's something more serious going on in Buffalo still, as you know, prior to that incident in Buffalo, and I'm not talking about the terrorist attack that happened at top store in between the terrorist attack and the, uh, scary situation. Now we don't have to use the word tragedy, the scary situation that happened on, on the field in Cincinnati a week or so ago. Buffalo suffered probably the worst start to a winter any city has ever experienced, starting with a massive snow blizzard and then combined it with a massive winter cyclone right after and 43 people died. So one of the things that we tend to do in this day and age of limited attention span is that we cover the story and then we don't really do the follow-up or, you know, kind of monitor the progress. We do a good job in war situations but domestic situations that lead to massive loss of life once the major calamity has passed, we tend to look elsewhere. And so I just want to remind people that there are folks in Buffalo that still need help. And one of my guests, Mark Talley, started a nonprofit after the TOPS um, attack. And the name of the agency, the nonprofit is Agents for Advocacy. And so if you want to help out, go to agentsforadvocacy.com. That's agentsforadvocacy.com. And check out and see what they're doing and what help they need to assist people who are still recovering from that winter storm. It was it was a major, major public works uh, catastrophe as well as the loss of human life. Because not only did you have to deal with all the ice and the snow and the cold temperatures, but then it got warm. And so there was some flooding. And so people in Buffalo need help, especially those people in marginal, marginalized communities. So I'm asking folks to go to agentsforadvocacy.com and see what they can do to help out. All right, so that's one. Now, the housekeeping related to the show. What a blessing 2023 is starting off to be. I have had a number of people show interest in being on the podcast. And I'm going to accommodate all those folks because, again, it's a blessing to have people interested in being guests. Today is one of those days where I don't have anybody. But over the next couple of weeks, we've got so many guests that within the span of two weeks, we're going to have four episodes, okay? 
So I just want y'all to be prepared for that. As you know, my show normally goes an hour. If we've got three guests, an hour and a half, close to two hours, all depends. And I, the, I don't want to go over two hours because I don't want people to tune in and turn off, right? But it's a blessing to have these people. Uh, I think it's a blessing for you as the listeners to be exposed to these folks and the work that they're doing. So we're going to accommodate them. And so for the next two weeks after this episode, we're going to have four episodes within those two weeks. And two of those episodes are going to be dedicated episodes. One, we're going to talk about climate change. And I've got a couple of guests that uh, will bring some perspectives to that. Um, and we're going to talk about black voters in another one. And I'm really honored for the men that are going to be on that show. So, uh, be ready. You're going to get a lot of moments with Eric Fleming over the next couple of weeks. And today you're going to get a lot of me period. It's been a while since I've done a entire show with no guests. I've had a half hour segment here, there, or maybe 15 minutes in between guests or whatever. But this is the first time that we've had a hot mic show in a while. And again, that's good. But I know there were some people who really liked the format when it was just me and the hot mic. So, you know, people have their taste. That's fine. I'm honored either way. As long as people are listening, I'm good. So today is a hot mic day. And I guess it's a perfect time for a hot mic day, considering what just happened in Washington, D.C. For those of you who not only were fasting from food or drink or whatever uh, vice or habit you wanted to stop for that first week in January, for those of y'all who were fasting away from politics, this is what happened. At the beginning of a congressional term, every two years, the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate organizes. And this has been a tradition that has gone on for the history of this nation. And of course, just like everything else, it's evolved. But the basic premise is that the leadership gets elected by the members elect, the folks that just got elected at previous election. And then once the leadership is selected, then the members are sworn in. And then they can go to work, right? And so the U.S. Senate, oh, and by the way, the leadership is determined by party. So in a parliamentary system, the leader of the nation is determined by the party that rules in, in parliament. In the United States, just the leadership of that respective body is determined by the party by the members. The leader of the nation is elected by the populace and the electoral college, which is a whole nother discussion. But anyway, so in the Senate, no problems. Democrats elected their leaders, Republicans elected their leaders. Um, the vice president serves as the president of the Senate. That's already been established. So then it becomes who's the majority leader, who's the minority leader. And on the Democratic side, Chuck Schumer is still the majority leader. On the Republican side, Mitch McConnell, by being reelected as the minority leader, has been the longest serving party leader in the history of the Senate, from what I understand. And then... 
a female, Patty Murray from, she's one of those states, I want to say was Washington State, was elected to president pro tem in the Senate. And I believe she's the first woman ever to serve. And so the Senate was organized, ready to go. Then came the House of Representatives. And we know that before the year ended, Nancy Pelosi said she wasn't going to stay in party leadership anymore. And Hakeem Jeffries stepped up in that in that spot. First African-American to be a party leader in either house. Uh, and so, but Mr. Jeffries is coming in as the minority leader because the Republicans got enough seats to be in the majority. So it's just a matter of the Republicans. And tradition usually is that whoever is the majority leader going in usually ascends to be the Speaker of the House. And Kevin McCarthy was reelected as the majority leader. But now that the Republicans are in charge, now it's supposed to be him being elected speaker. Well, if you did follow it, you realize it didn't quite go as smooth as it had been in the past. In recent times, all the speakers are elected on the first ballot because the conference made their choice. And, you know, once the conference makes their choice and they go ahead and vote for who won in the conference, in this case, it was Kevin McCarthy. And so supposed to vote him in. This has been going on for consistently for 100 years. That's the last time, 1923 was the last time that a speaker's vote went beyond one ballot. So, ladies and gentlemen, what ended up happening was that four days into the House session of the 118th Congress, speaker had not been elected. For many days, the minority leader, Mr. Jeffries, was receiving the most votes, although he couldn't possibly get the majority needed, which was 218, to be the speaker. The most he could get was 212, which is all of the Democrats. So, well, not all of them, because there's one seat that is vacant. And that is because of the untimely death of the gentleman from Virginia. And they are still having a special election for that. Um, this is right after he got reelected, he passed away. And so they're having a special election for that. And once that election is commenced, then the House will be at full 435. But right now, it was 434 for organizational purposes. And... <laughs> Mr. Jeffries got all 212 votes. Mr. McCarthy, on the other hand, couldn't get 218. And we had one ballot, two ballots, three ballots, four ballots. Now, when we got to four ballots, we've surpassed what happened 100 years ago because the battle 100 years ago only lasted three ballots. The Republicans and the Republicans were in charge then, and they had worked out a deal by the third ballot. But that wasn't the case with this group. And so finally, really five days, considering the timing of it, and 15 ballots later, <clears throat> excuse me, McCarthy prevailed. At around 12.45, I believe, Saturday morning, he had prevailed and got the votes he needed, which at that point ended up because of deals that were made and all that. 
He only needed 216 to win. And he got it. Finally. Thought they were going to go to the 14th, but something happened. <laughs> and he got it on the 15th. So by 1 o'clock Saturday, early Saturday morning, 1 a.m., McCarthy had the gavel in hand, and they started the process of organizing the House. They swore everybody in. And so now both houses of Congress are functioning. So that's kind of the abbreviated recap. Here's the analysis. And there were a lot of people on national television talking about how broken the Republican Party has become because everybody was saying if it took you four days and 15 ballots to come to a consensus on who should be the speaker and you fought hard to get this Republican majority, even as slim as it is, you still have the majority. And it took you that long to work out a deal. What kind of chaos is going to ensue from that group as they govern for the next two years? And I make the contention that they are exactly where they want to be. I think the Republican Party, as it stands right now, with those elected leaders that they have, are right where they want to be. I think the people that are in the House of Representatives that are members of the Republican Party are the people that the electorate wanted in those positions. And so what may look like chaos to us that are not members of the Republican Party, that are not members of Congress, that are looking at it from the outside, is actually what this Republican Party in 2023 wants. They want a freewheeling House of Representatives. They want a House of Representatives that is divided in many ways. They're hoping that the Democrats over some issues will divide as well, which will make them totally feel comfortable. But as it stands right now, the Democrats, and they have their factions, seem to be pretty united and have made a statement that they're going to try to be united as much as possible on every major issue that does come before that body. But the Republicans are not committed to that. There are going to be Republicans that are going to push for certain things legislatively. There are going to be Republicans that are going to demand hearings on everything from laptops to, you know, directors of agencies. You know, they want to, they want to try to claw back money, anything they could possibly, all their, all their issues that they were griping and complaining about during the first two years of Biden administration, they want to try to rectify those. And they feel that they have to have a free willing house to do it. Now, for those who did pay close attention, let's, let's get into the weeds a little bit. Anytime there's, and this has been my experience and I, I've never served in Congress, but I did serve in a legislative body. And I actually did run for Speaker of the House, for those who may have not known that. Because we had a leadership change during my tenure there. The Speaker that had been there when I got there decided 16 years was enough. And so he stepped down, and that opened it up. And so... If you've heard the story before, cool. If you have not, let me tell it. So I was a relatively new member 
I came in and finished the term and I was on my first full term when all this was going on. And what we were getting ready to, yeah. Yeah, first full term. It gets blurry as you get older. <laughs> anyway, I had basically served my first full term. And so we were going into this next term. And uh, I didn't have any opposition for, this is literally 20 years ago. I didn't have any opposition for my seat. And I looked at this as an opportunity for the Black Caucus to one, maybe have a chance to make history, but two, put us in a position to deal with a lot of the concerns that we had. Uh, and the biggest concern was having African-American members, especially since a lot of them had served for a long, long time, to be in leadership positions. And I say leadership positions as far as committee chairs. Right. We wanted one of the money committees. We wanted either ways and means or appropriations, if not both. Right. And so we felt because of the tenure of a lot of the members and, and the loyalty, because we were still a Democratic majority house at the time, that those that should be rewarded. But none of the members who had the stature, who had the tenure, who really actually could have won, in my opinion, wanted to run. They were happy to settle for Speaker Pro Tem, which we already had. The first African-American that served since Reconstruction was the Speaker Pro Tem already. And so in my mind, I'm looking at opportunity for black folks to be in a position of leadership and really move things forward and that wasn't really the vision of my colleagues in the Black Caucus. So, without really consulting them, I declared that I was going from the floor, I declared that I was going to run for Speaker of the House. And you could have bought a lot of people with a wet food stamp when I made that announcement. Now, there was another shocking announcement. There was a guy who was basically finishing out his freshman term who also decided to run. And everybody was looking at him like, who is that? And he, I don't even think he got reelected, but nonetheless, <laughs> he, he was out there. And then you had three others, including Billy McCoy who was the Ways and Means chair. And he was kind of the odds-on favorite to, to get it. But, so, now you got five people running, and I'm the only African-American. And then you had a Republican, I think Mark Formby, jumped in it just so the Republicans could have a candidate. So, okay, six, right? And so as... I was doing what needed to be done as far as being a candidate for Speaker of the House. Um, I um, <laughs> I was campaigning, right? And I was calling people just like everybody else and asking for support. And I was talking to members of the Black Caucus, all this stuff, and, you know, trying to get them to vote as a block and actually had black members tell me, well, you need to have some white votes in order for us to consider you being speaker. That's kind of the dynamics of how that stuff works, right? Cause a lot of the black members wanted to commit to McCoy or somebody else white in order just to get the speaker pro tem and maybe get some of those uh, committee chairmanships that they wanted. So what I had to tell my own people was this, 
I need you to get behind me. If you get behind me, then you can get what you want. Because I can't get the majority of the votes. But if we come in as a block, then we can get what we want from whoever the speaker is going to be, whichever candidate, because we can vote as a block and support the speaker that we want and get what we want. So, did that. Reluctantly, by the way, but they did that. And so, the strategy worked. So, for the first time ever in the history of the Mississippi House of Representatives, candidates for speaker committed to come to the caucus meeting to campaign. We called a special meeting just for those people to come. That had never happened before. What has always been able to happen is that those members who wanted to be speaker and, you know, for the few blacks that were there at the time, were able to just cherry pick who they needed and they would get the votes and win. When Tim Ford got to be speaker, the one who was leaving, it was total chaos on that one. It was a lot of deals going on. But he ended up being the consensus candidate because he had offended the least amount of people, but that's a whole other story. So anyway, so once that meeting was set up and those candidates committed to be there, I dropped out. Because at that point, I had accomplished what I wanted for us. Even if other people didn't see the vision right away, they got it when those guys showed up. And we got to ask some questions like, are you committed to a member of the, of the Black Caucus being a chair of appropriations or ways and means? Are you committed to making sure that of the major committees that African-Americans would get first crack at being the chair. And many of the members felt that the only person that was really sincere about it was Billy McCoy. And so that was the trend, but the, but the strategy was for us to vote as a block. And it was to say some drama happened and people weren't following the commitment and I kind of distanced myself from the caucus. Well, actually, I quit the caucus for a minute. Uh, and then everything, but everything shaped up the way it did. Billy got elected. We got a black person to be over ways and means. And we had a record number of members given committee chairmanship, so much so that one of the things that we would do whenever we greeted each other was say, Mr. Chairman, hey, Mr. Chairman, how you doing? Chairwoman, how you doing? Because out of the 40 plus of us that were members, <laughs> uh, half of us were given chairmanships. I didn't get one, of course, because <laughs> I had jumped out there, kind of set the standard and was the instigator, but ended up being a vice chairman of the committee, whatever, but Nonetheless, <laughs> uh, it, it, it ended up getting what we wanted. So I say all that to set up what we're going to talk about in the second half as to why it took 15 votes to get a Speaker of the House in the U.S. House of Representatives. Because whenever you're running for that position, you've got to make deals with the members in order to get the votes that you need. And it doesn't matter how big the block is that you've got to get past. If it's a big enough block to stop you from getting the majority of votes that you need, then you have to address their concerns. And so on the other side, I'll kind of try to explain what were some of the big sticking points and hopefully that'll give you as the listeners 
who had some questions on social media about what was going on and why it's taking so long and try to explain it as plain as possible what happened. All right, we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and so we are back. So I hope that um, I appreciate, well, I appreciate you indulging me in going back in history to talk about something that I went through so that you would kind of understand what was going on in Washington leading up to those 15 ballots. Members have a right to leverage their votes. And it doesn't matter how small the block, big the block, as I stated. Uh, every vote is important if you want to be speaker, especially if you're trying to get the majority. So what happened in D.C. was that there was a group of members. I would consistently say about 18 that wanted specific things, specific things (laughs) uh, in order to throw their support behind McCarthy's leadership. And there's a number of them, at least about six that don't like Kevin McCarthy and, didn't want to vote for him regardless because bottom line is they didn't trust him. And I know a lot of people that listen or a lot of people that look at politics, they say, well, everybody in politics lies and all this stuff. The truth is, is that the only commodity you have as a member of a body is your word. And if you renege on your word for whatever reason, then it's going to be hard for you to gain the trust of your colleagues ever again, especially if it's something major, right? And if you follow politics and just kind of look at how certain people respond to certain folks, that's the reason why some elections turn out the way they do, but that's a whole other topic for another day. So these members wanted to get ironclad commitments from McCarthy before they voted for him. And initially, McCarthy thought, well, we just keep doing it, we just keep doing it, wear them out, they'll just give in. Because of public pressure, because of media, media scrutiny, you know, especially from those conservative outlets like Fox and OAN and Newsmax, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, the uh, Washington Examiner, all these different media outlets that are considered conservative. Once they kind of started getting on a bandwagon, hey, just go ahead and pick McCarthy and let's move on and get our agenda. McCarthy was banking that that would happen. But after about a couple of days, he realized he probably needed to make some concessions. And so they started working and they started trying to pick him off. And so by Friday afternoon, he had convinced a number of those who were in opposition to him to go ahead and support him. He flipped them. It's the term we use. And so now it was down really to like five or six members who were still not really committed. And he finally just convinced them to vote present. What that did was it lowered the margin of victory. So with those members and the final vote that voted present, that lowered the threshold he needed where he didn't need 218, he only needed 215, 216. And 
they got it. So one of the issues that the dissenters, uh, the anti-Kevins, whatever term you want to use for them, uh, were concerned about was a rule to vacate the chair. So up until the previous term, maybe the 116th term is when they changed it. Um, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, asked for that rule to be suspended. Meaning that, and that rule is that one member from the House could ask for the speakers to speaker's seat to be vacated and a new election to take place. Now, the majority of the members would have to agree to that. But given what was happening in the country, well, I, that's why I say it was 117, because given what was happening in the country, and given what was going on politically with the Republicans. I mean, we had gotten to a point where people were yelling at the president during a State of the Union address. Y'all remember that? And, you know, calling him a liar and all that kind of stuff. And then and then we had four years of Donald Trump. <laughs> and so you know, it was kind of like anything goes and Speaker Pelosi basically said, look, we don't need to have that kind of chaos in the House to get what we need done. If we're going to be having a Speaker's election every month or whatever to try to stop us from pushing our agenda, we don't need that. And so she got the members to the majority, the Democrats, basically, to agree to suspend that rule. And they did. So one of the issues that the dissenters of McCarthy wanted to make sure they got changed was that to take that rule off suspension. To reinstate the rule that any member can ask for the speaker's seat to be vacated and demand a new election for speaker. So McCarthy gave him that, right? But another one was this committee. And if you listen to the pundits, they call it the church committee because there was a member who wanted a special committee, Frank church who wanted a committee set up to investigate the investigators. <laughs> he wanted to have a committee to make sure that those agencies like the FBI and the DEA and even secret service, all these agencies that have basically law enforcement authority to be under the scrutiny of the U.S. Congress. Now, they the U.S. Congress has some power with that because there is an oversight committee in both houses. But he wanted to have a special committee to make sure that those particular agencies, you know, were dotting their I's and crossing their T's. Well, that was important because of what? <laughs> the former president is basically under investigation. And if there is any way that the Republicans that are in control of the House now can discredit the Department of Justice in any way, shape, or form, they can discredit the Department of Justice, then maybe, just maybe, the former president doesn't get indicted. It would taint, in the public view, 
the investigation because they're trying to make it seem like with Donald, the investigation on Donald Trump for all of his actions, whether it's his taxes, it's January 6th, it's election tamper, whatever, whatever they're trying to go after him for, right? They want to, they want to put a taint on the agency that's looking at indicting him. So public opinion would make it seem like it's political rather than substantive in a criminal justice standpoint. So they wanted that committee. And of course they want certain members on that committee to make sure that those investigations happen. And McCarthy conceded that to them. Let alone, they wanted to make sure that there were a number, a certain amount of members from that resistance group strategically placed in certain committees, especially the ones dealing with money, appropriations and ways and means, as well as oversight and others to, to raise issues and if need be create chaos in order to stop certain things from going through certain budget items. Right. So McCarthy had to give in on that. And then there were three things which one of them I've had a history of opposing, but the other two I have not. Right. But one of them is kind of, if you, the way you do it determines. So the one that I don't have a problem with at all, a demand of this group was to have a balanced budget. That is something that I had to deal with as a state legislator, that every person who serves in a state legislature in the United States has to deal with. In some states, you can't adjourn until you have a balanced budget. But every state, and if you throw in Puerto Rico and Guam and Virgin Islands and D.C., all those governments have to have a balanced budget approved. And if you've noticed, the U.S. government hasn't really had a quote-unquote budget budget. <laughs> it's been kind of like you approve enough money to operate until a certain time, and then you've got to re-vote again to appropriate money, and yada, yada, instead of a normal appropriation process. So one of the issues that this group wanted, and there were some other members who had already committed to McCarthy that were in favor of it, is to commit the United States Congress to pass a balanced budget. Now, there's actually an amendment that's been floating around to be added to the Constitution that you have to have a balanced budget every year. Don't know if they got enough of a commitment to make that amendment because you would have to get more than a simple majority to approve an amendment in both houses to take out to the states to agree to it. At least 38 states would have to approve of this constitutional amendment. But they can make it a rule or yeah, for lack of a better term, a rule in the House or even create legislation to mandate that during this term that the budget has to be balanced in order for it to be approved. So we'll see how that goes. But I've always been in favor because I've had to do it and thousands of other people who've had the distinction of being a state legislator have had to do it. And tough decisions have to be made 
but every year or every session, however the state legislatures in your respective states do it, whenever it's time to approve the budget, they, they approve a balanced budget. And I think the United States Congress should do the same. There's people that argue, well, you know, money's fluid. United States has to have so much money available for defense and yada, yada, yada. I get all that. But the United States should also have reserve money more so than any other state. They should have a rainy day fund, as we used to call it in Mississippi, or whatever you want, savings, whatever. Surplus that you ought to be able to pull from that if need be, if, you know, it requires that. But taxpayers pay money to the state, they get a balanced budget in return. Taxpayers that pay the federal government should get the same thing. I know as a Democrat, maybe that's not a popular stand to take, but it is what it is. And I think that that's a sign of accountability. So that's one thing I agree on. Now, the other one that I'm kind of lukewarm about is the amendment process. So what has happened in a lot of these spending bills over the last few years is that deals are made and they push them through and the leadership of both the House and the Senate limit, if not totally eliminate, amendments to those spending bills. If you don't get it in, in the drafting process, then you're not going to get it in, right? And then it used to be a way where literally (laughs) you would just if you had something that you wanted earmarked for your particular district, you would literally just slide that copy under the door of the appropriations chair office and it would get added on. So when the bill was brought before, the news would cover some of the highlights, but you wouldn't know about $500,000 or $5 million for a helium tank in Kansas or whatever, right? All that stuff would be slipped in. And so even though it says there's X amount of money for each agency, that's not really true because a lot of that money would be earmarked or designated for a particular project. So it was actually less money for that agency to operate that's being shown on paper because certain monies have already been designated to be used somewhere else. So this group wanted the amendment process to come back. Now, in most state legislatures, it's not like the U.S. Congress back in what I call freewheeling days. It's, it's, you have to, if you want to make an amendment to an appropriation, you have to do it from the floor, right? If you're not on the committee, then you have to do it from the floor. If those members, when they're talking about amendments to appropriations to the federal budget, they're talking about limiting amendments to the floor, allowing amendments to happen and limiting those amendments to the floor. I don't have a problem with that because it's all about transparency, right? It's all about the general public knowing what these members are asking for. Right. If you want that five million dollars for the helium tank in Kansas, you got to do it from the floor. You can't slide it under the door. Right. And get it stuck in. If you want that, you have to do it. Now, if those members choose to do that, that slows down the process on appropriations. But. Or as the term we used to say, Christmas tree it. Right. Because everybody's trying to get their particular 
appropriation for their district. So when they go back and campaign, they say, hey, I got this for that. And that's tangible because there. But nevertheless, at least the general public knows that this member asked for that appropriation or that earmark. And I'm, I'm in favor of that. I think that is part of transparent government. You should know that your representative, representative asked for that. Now, if, if it's just to allow people to slide stuff into the door again, no, I'm not in favor of that. I think if you want to make an amendment and you want to have a special earmark, you've got to stand before the 435 members and ask for it on the floor or else it shouldn't be considered, shouldn't be added in. If you're not on the appropriations committee and you can add it in that way, then you got to do it from the floor. So I don't have a problem with that one. The third one is the one that I have opposed in the past. And that is term limits. Now, there have been a number of members out of this group and out of this mindset that have honored what they said that they only wanted to run so many terms because you have to, in order to serve 10 years or 12 years, if you wanted to serve 10 years, you got to be elected five times, 12 years, six times in the house. In that, in the Senate, if you want to serve six years, you only got to 12 years, you only got to get reelected. You got to get elected once and reelected once. And you've got 12 years, but in the house, if you were going to serve 12 years, you got to be reelected six times. Well, there are some states that have term limits, and there's a lot of states like Mississippi voted against it, and I was one of those people that were voting against it several times. And I hear the arguments that people make. It's like, well, you know, because of the money that's involved and, and the corruption that goes on in Washington or the availability of corruption, you kind of want to recycle people and especially in the house of representatives, because that's the people's house and everybody's got to run every two years. And, you know, there's some people that master it and they end up staying 30, 40 years in the house. Right. And at least 20. And you, you, you want to get new faces in there. Well, if you look at the dynamics, most of the Republican members are not really that long serving. There's a few that have been around for a long, long time, but not that many. Most of the people that have served multiple years, multiple terms, like over five in the House, are Democrats. And most of them are African Americans, right? So what I see that as is an attempt to get rid of a lot of the institutional black leadership that is in the House of Representatives and constantly, you know, bringing in new members, you know, to deal with it. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that those Republican members won't stay in long, but considering the advantages that you have being a white Republican as being a black Democrat, not just in that building, but in society in general, it still would be an unfair advantage to those Republicans, right? Nonetheless, the other thing is institutional history. And first of all, you have to establish what would be the cutoff and understand that the minute that you create the cutoff, there'll be some members that can't run again. Right. And then there'll be some members that they could only run for one more term. Once you establish that cutoff. And so 
that's going to be the big debate. What would be the fair cutoff in the House? Number one. And then number two, when you get to the point where the staff may actually have more seniority than the members, I'm always wary of that. You know, because a lot of the staff in D.C., they may work for a congressman for only a limited time, but then they'll work for another one. And they'll just kind of rotate around and they get hired because they've got the experience already. And so they just kind of get recycled like NFL coaches. <laughs> right. They, you know, because it's a certain skill set. And if you get in, once you get that experience, you're in. And you can parlay that as playing you know, roulette or round robin, whatever, or musical chairs with different congressional members, or you can parlay that to be lobbyists. And, you know, I just have fundamental issues with lobbyists, although you can't really help it, but lobbyists and staff that have more seniority than the actual members who have to vote on the policies. But there's value in, in having seasoned and experienced staff as well as having seasoned and experienced legislators. What I think the issue has to be is to minimize the corruption or the availability of corruption. Because it doesn't matter how long somebody's in the position. If they have a mindset to be corrupt, then they're going to be corrupt, whether they are only going to be there for two years or for 20. And so if you don't address how money influences the Congress and the political process, then it doesn't matter how long those members serve. And I think you create more corruption when you limit people because for a time certain, they know they've got to do X, Y, and Z and they've got to raise X amount of money to do it. And I think it gives the outsiders, lobbyists, more power and more availability to corrupt the people that are, you know are only going to be there for a certain amount of time. So I believe in institutional knowledge. I believe that there is a need to have some members who have been there for a long time to counteract members that are new. And then just like in California, you'll get situations where you'll have somebody who basically has just served one term, <clears throat> you know, actually being speaker. Somebody that's only been there for two years could possibly be the speaker of the house. As opposed to somebody that's been there for four or five terms. Right. So, you kind of want the leadership to have a long period of experience to know the rules and to navigate the process and to run the institution smoothly. I get it though. I get it. And especially those who have challenged, I've been a challenger to incumbents. I get it. You know, it's a disadvantage for a challenger to run against somebody that's been there forever and has all this access and has this network and can raise all this money and has got this name ID, yada, yada. I get it. But whether it's a set term or whether it is the current status, every two years, people can change what the Congress looks like. And in a situation where you've got some folks that you think ain't really wrapped too tight already in the seat and you term limit them, well, you may elect somebody crazier than them, you know, because after they've served a while, they kind of realize maybe I don't need to be that crazy. And just when you get them to that point, well, they got to go. And then you get somebody that's even crazier to replace them. 
And then you got you to gotta look at how the districts are drawn, right? You got to deal with that dynamic. You got to, we got to get to a point where districts are drawn independently so that it's not skewed where only radical, crazy people from each party get elected. That in a primary process, boom, or get rid of, since you don't have to live in the district that you want to represent, as long as you live in the state, maybe we should get to a point where we elect congressional people by the herd. Now, people will say, well, Fleming, that will be a disadvantage for black candidates or Latino candidates or whatever, because the majority of populations in every state is white. But if all of the black voters say, well, we're going to vote for this particular black candidate or that particular black candidate, then they'll have a majority. And if you take away the the runoff piece, especially in the Southern states, then there's a possibility that you can maintain or even increase black representation or Latino representation or Asian American Pacific Islander representation or even indigenous people representation in the United States Congress. You could do that. But to, to keep the system as it is, the gerrymandering, I think that's more of an issue than term limits. So, as you can see, an hour is not enough <laughs> to explain all these dynamics, but I wanted to at least kind of throw out what was out there and why this fight particularly happens. And now we have to see how Kevin McCarthy as the speaker governs. There's not a whole lot of optimism out there for it. I don't know. I mean, I've heard doomsday scenarios before. I served in the Mississippi legislature under Republican governors. I served under a Democratic governor. Mississippi is still there. And they still have their issues and their problems, but it's still there. And other states have done the same thing. And they've weathered the storm because democracy works. And there's accountability in democracy. When democracy is no longer existent, that's when you have problems. So I hope that in the time allotted to me, I kind of explained some of the dynamics that was going on, what my viewpoint on that is. And uh, I hope that it was educational to a extent. And I don't want to push it and, and, talk much more than I already have but I think if people understood what's going on then you know what to look for out of this leadership we're going to have committees investigating the president and the administration we're going to have floor fights dealing with money the debt ceiling is an issue that's coming up uh, and whether we even continue to support Ukraine at the rate that we're supporting them will come up. Will we see a voting rights act in this term? The odds are that it's not, but we don't know. Right. Um, that's part of the dynamic of having a divided house. You don't know who you'll be able to pull to get it. And if, the whole idea of what these detractors wanted was to make the house more freewheeling. Then with the right amount of negotiation with the right amount of chutzpah and public support, you might be surprised what we get out of this two year term. But until now, until we get, I say until now, until we get, more into 
the organization of the house and who gets what and how that's going to fall out, we don't really know. What we do know is it's going to be exciting to watch and it's something that we need to watch and something that we need to put a footnote in so that two years, well, really a year and a half now, almost, when November 2024 comes around, we'll make decisions to see what kind of leadership we want in that house and hopefully a president and a Senate along with that house that will continue to move America forward and not take giant steps back until next time.